Welcome back, everybody, to the Film Cafeteria. I'm Scott. And I'm Brittany. And today we are doing a very special kind of birthday, post-birthday fun episode about John Hughes. Yes. So happy belated birthday, even though we saw each other on your birthday. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we are talking today in particular about uh, Pretty in Pink from yes. 1986 mm -hmm. and also some kind of wonderful from 1987. Yes. Um, but I guess just to start out talking about just John Hughes in general, like for me, prior to meeting you, I was always kind of a John Hughes defender and big fan of his work. And then I met you and I realized like, I thought I was a fan of John Hughes, but really I'm just a tourist Here's in the world of John Hughes. So I guess, could you talk to us a little bit about like, John, like, how did you first come to John Hughes' stuff and, like, kind of what he means to you as a filmmaker? Um, when I first came, like, in contact, if it's, if it's <laughs> contagious, you know, I first came in contact with John Hughes' films um, very early on, actually. It was in the early 90s when I was really little because, mm -hmm. you know, of course, like, we always talk about TBS. Yep. It would play... Pretty in Pink and 16 Candles and Some Kind of Wonderful. And that's actually where I found a lot of his films that I loved, as well as Home Alone and all those things. Um, and after that, I just fell in love with his coming-of-age stories because, mm -hmm. some, to me, he has some of the best coming-of-age stories in, like, the last, like, yeah. 50 years, in my opinion, because I think he hits the nail on the head when yeah. he can really give you an insight to like growing up yeah in those teenage years in those awkward years mm -hmm. in those fun years in those years that you're just trying to figure out who you are yeah and yeah. i think he does an amazing job with telling those kinds of stories yeah i think it was janet maslin who in one of her reviews of his films had said <sighs> yeah <laughs> had said something who she for the most part, really liked a lot of John Hughes's stuff. And I, I think she was the one who had kind of said to some degree or another, uh, that, you know, I mean, John Hughes, when it came to like these kind of coming of age stories, especially about teenagers, that this was a genre that he not only basically rebuilt by himself, but it's a genre that he now essentially owns entirely on his own yeah and i think at the time of her i think that that was part of her review for some kind of wonderful if i'm not mistaken mm -hmm. and i a hundred percent agree with that the thing that's insane to me about his films is when you start looking at all of the stuff outside of those coming of age movies that he was also a part of like mm -hmm. mr mom uh planes trains and automobiles that we just rewatched. uncle buck uncle yeah. buck <laughs> uh and then of course my Favorite yeah. ones, the National Lampoon's vacation movies. Yes. Um, it's crazy to see, like, the kind of expansive career that he has that even now we think mostly about the movies that we're going to be talking about. And I think for good reason, because I think when you really, really break down his career, those are the most lasting of his films and the, the best of his, his work for the most part, you know, yeah. or the times that he decided to kind of jump into whether it was the breakfast club or ferris bueller which i unbelievable like just unabashedly adore or pretty yeah. and pink or some kind of wonderful like he had like a really good hold on that how to talk about that time in life yeah and it's funny because 
throughout the 90s, people tried to like do their own version or interpretation mm-hmm. of the John Hughes films because yeah. think about all the movies we had in the early 90s. Now, I will admit, it's not as prevalent now as no. it was then. Yeah, I say early to mid-2000s, it started to kind of die down a lot. Yeah. And we get good coming-of-age stories in teen films, I say far in between now, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, I think those um, has migrated to streaming service and series, but I don't yeah, really but watch even a lot when of I, them. Yeah, yeah, I was about to say, even when I've taken time to kind of look over the ones in streaming, I'm like, they... Just, they just for me, compare. they just yeah. don't compare. But some of the ones that like try to like really hone in on those teenage years, especially mm-hmm. during the nineties, because that was like the grunge era, and yeah. that was so many things that was happening in the nineties. Yeah. All this new kind of like evolution of things. Yeah. Like I saw so many things happen during the nineties that you had things like Varsity Blues, yeah, and yeah. she's all that. Almost famous. Yeah, almost famous. Yeah. You had um, also Can't Hardly Wait. Can't Hardly Wait. Days and Confused. Days and Confused. <clears throat> Ten Things I Hate About You. Yeah. All those are the same common age <laughs> stories that I watch yeah. to this day. Like, if I see it on, I will watch it. Yeah. Because those are the good ones that kind of followed after John Hughes. Mm-hmm. But all in all, John Hughes is still the master of that. I completely agree. I One thing that um, I was very curious about was... Uh, I guess for you, like one thing that John Hughes had for me that I didn't really expect, but I really saw it going back to these was how much he informed indirectly a lot of my taste in music. Yes. Mine as well. (laughs) Because he had good soundtracks to all his films. He had great soundtracks. Of course, like when we start talking about Pretty in Pink, where you get into stuff like Psychedelic Furs, or, you know, when you get into Otis Redding, Redding, or when you get into uh, Some Kind of Wonderful, and you can talk about, you know, the Smiths being, you know, on the soundtrack, or, you know, there's the Stones references. It's kind of incredible going back to these movies now. I'm not somebody who really normally thinks a whole lot about John Hughes movies. And when I do... A lot of times I think, like, you know, the the thing that crops in my mind immediately when I think about his teenage movies is the twist and shout sequence from Ferris Bueller. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is my one of my favorite filmed sequences ever. Mm-hmm. But going back to these two films in particular, I was sitting there going, like, these are all, mo- like, songs. Mm-hmm that I loved a lot were bands that I loved a lot at that same age as these characters. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of found these movies just a little bit earlier through the same way as like TBS and mm-hmm. like, you know, or Turner Superstation, whatever it was at that time. Yeah. That, that was the exact same way that I found them. Mm-hmm. Turner and then, Broadcasting Station or something like that. I think you're, yeah. Well, or Systems. Turner Broadcasting Systems or something like that. It was that I think that's what it stands for, right? Yeah, that's what TBS stands for. I remember before that there was I think it was called the Turner Superstation. Oh. When it was still uh like they were doing like dinner and a movie yeah. and twenty four hours it was of still Eastwood. TBS, though. I well I think TBS was like the the kind of like big kind of overarching thing, but then the local thing was Turner Superstation. Oh, thing. Okay. okay. I think that that's how that worked. But um, I'd have to go back and actually research it. So everything I just said could be totally wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do remember the super station, so I don't really remember. Yeah, I think you're if right. If that was like a local thing or what that was. But um, I that that was like one of the things that really kind of struck me, though, going back to, to that whole entire thing. The other thing that really struck me was the fact that 
I don't know who exists today that makes that can churn out original screenplays the way that John Hughes did. The two movies we're about yeah. to talk about came out a year apart from one another. Yeah. And one of them is a response to the other one. Mm-hmm. A lot of times when you look at movies, I would say being made in the past 20 years, if a filmmaker makes a response to one of their previous movies, it takes like six years. Yeah. If they're writing an original screenplay. Mm-hmm. This guy was churning out movies like they were nothing. Yeah. And the vast majority of them are classics. Yeah. And we're, you know, like blockbusters. Mm-hmm. Um. So that was just some stuff that I thought yeah. <laughs> that I kind of noticed going back to them. <laughs> so I guess um, jumping into it with Pretty in Pink, mm-hmm. uh, you chose these two movies, so I, I'm going to you know, let you kind of jump into it because I don't even know really where to start with them per se. I guess like we always do. Yeah. Um, Pretty in Pink, it is a 1986 American teen romantic comedy drama film about the love and social cliques in American high schools in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. So it is a cult classic. Yeah. Um, it is commonly identified as the Brat Pack film. Yeah. Which you remember that era of the Brat yeah, Pack. Yeah, because that was yeah. like San Almost Fire and The Outsiders and yes. all of those. Yeah. It was the, the, Which I, and those I think, films I love as well. <laughs> yeah, and I think The Breakfast Club kind of falls in there it, too. It does. Yeah. The Brat Pack is mm-hmm. part of Breakfast Club falls into that. Um... But yeah, the film was named after a song by the Psychedelic Furs. Yeah. Um, and the film soundtrack, which has been acclaimed as among the most brilliant in modern cinema, features a re-recorded version of the song, Orchestra... Sorry, I'm going to butcher that, but... Orchestral Maneuvers. Yeah, yeah, In the Dark, If You Leave, became an international hit and charted at number four on the Billboard Hot 100 in May 1986. Yeah. Which is so funny because in May of 1986... I think I was only like four months old at that time. (laughs) (laughs) So that is funny. Um, But uh, Pretty in Pink is starring Molly Ringwald, Harry Dean Stanton, John Cryer, Annie Potts, James Spader, and Andrew McCarthy, which is some of the top actors and actresses of the 80s and 90s. So that's what was so cool because I love um, Tough Turf. Yeah, and usually yeah, yeah. James Spader plays sort of a villain in a lot of his films, but or, in that one he was actually yeah. yeah, and in that one it was the opposite. He was actually the good guy, and then he yeah. kind of got bullied a lot by the guys surrounding that area. So I, I love that movie as well. My auntie introduced me to that one because that kind of came out when she was yeah at that age as well. So it's so funny. Um, but it was released in January 29, nineteen eighty six. Um, and in February 28th. So I guess it was limited release in January 29th um, of 1986. And then it was a big release in Fe- or February 28th, which is also, fun fact, that is also the month of my birthday. So yeah. this all aligns with probably <laughs> why I'm so stuck on these things. Yeah. Um, the budget of this film was $9 million, but the box office um, actually came back with $40.5 million. Yeah. So that was pretty good. It was a huge hit. Yeah. And you know, we were talking you were talking about the releases, the the staggering I and between the the that first thing and then the big release I found out was they so in Los Angeles at Man's Grammas Chinese, uh they the theater they released the movie to essentially like test audiences more or less. Mm-hmm. 
And I didn't really realize that this was, I think that this was a relatively common thing with John Hughes where he would kind of release the movie into one theater and watch it kind of play out. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is that this is part of what ended up giving us the ending of Pretty in Pink. Yeah. Which I guess we'll get to, but like that first release is actually what wound up creating how the reason why they ended up with the ending that they do. Yeah. In Pretty in Pink. And which, yes, because you always talk about how it was just not... And, which we both are kind of like, yeah. that is not the ending that should have taken place. So the thing that I guess we can go and jump into right now if you want to. Yeah. Like, the ending that was that we have is that she winds up going off with uh, Spader. And mm-hmm. that... Um, no. no, no, no. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Andrew um, McCarthy. Uh, Andrew McCarthy. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Yeah. Um, she ends up going off with Andrew McCarthy. But the story kind of sets you up that she's going to wind up getting with Ducky, played by John, John Cryer, Cryer. Which is her best her friend. Her best in friend. Film. Yeah. And that what ended up happening was that that was the ending that they shot. Yeah. Was her getting with Ducky at the end. Mm-hmm. And then the audience, when they released it on that January 29th day, was, was really not having it. They were like, we don't want to see Molly Ringwald get with this ugly guy. That was essentially their response. That's kind of crazy. <laughs> what made it even crazier was that Molly Ringwald apparently publicly agreed with the audience response and stated, I don't understand what John Hughes and John Cryer were thinking with that ending either. This is about a girl who wants to get whatever it is that she wants mm-hmm. and you don't allow her to actually have what she wants at the end of the movie. Yeah. She was like, I don't, I don't get it either. So because of that, they ended up having to go and grab Andrew McCarthy, who had just cut his hair. Yeah. And because his hair looks very different at the end. If you notice, there's like a wig on his head at the end is it doesn't match. They tried as best as they could, but it actually doesn't match the, the, the first hour of the movie. But that last like 10, 15 minutes where they're at the prom, his hair is actually different. So apparently he had just taken a Broadway show or he had just taken a, a, a show on stage, had cut his hair and actually gained a little bit of his weight back because he had lost a lot of weight for this role. And they had to bring him back in and like try to trick him to look a little bit slimmer and put this silly wig on him yeah. and reshoot the ending because they were like, nobody is going to like this ending because they don't want to see Molly Ringwald kiss John Cryer. Yeah, and it's so funny because <laughs> you can also tell that the way they have the lighting. Yeah. Do you remember the lighting? Yeah, I do. You can tell they tried to hide a lot of things because a lot of it was like dimly lit and in shadows. Yeah. So it's funny because I'm like, they tried to hide it and make it match. Yeah. But, but I, it's funny because it's the only we... part of the movie with mood lighting. <laughs> yes, and it's so funny because we could tell. Yeah. That it did not naturally match the yeah. end of the movie. Like, yeah. that was not the natural ending of the film. Yeah. Like, I could actually tell it. You could actually tell it because we would talk about that all the time. Yeah. So that's what's so funny about and that. For me, it was always the ending of Pretty in Pink that made it kind of... It, it. I think it was the right ending for the moment. Yeah. But it was not the right ending for the movie's longevity. Yeah. I think that that last kind of five minutes sort of is a little disingenuous on many levels because mm-hmm. the story is building us up to her and John Cryer. Yes. In my opinion. And th- that's what it looks like. Yeah. Um, but no, 
She goes for Andrew McCarthy's character. Which I never really fully got. Like, I, I don't know. That's just me. <laughs> <laughs> I've never really fully got it. I mean, I, I, I get what the audience is saying from that period was the audience was really saying, like, we want to see the really attractive girl with the really attractive guy. Yeah. And, and you know, conventionally attractive people. Yeah. We want to see them get together. I kind of like the idea of this like conventional beauty of her day getting with this very unconventionally, yeah. you know, uh, 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 this very like, you know, guy who was not considered like conventionally attractive. Yeah. And in the words of Ducky, I will always and forever be a duck man. Yep. You remember when he said <laughs> yeah. that and then he kind of clicked his shoes together. <laughs> yeah. And like, for me, like, you know, and I also think one of the things was, is that within John Cryer's performance, I feel like he, he kind of like brought the character to a place where he kind of earned, you know, his, his, his spot as the romantically by the end of the movie. Yeah. He came out with so much charisma. We were talking about as we were watching it, but the, the Otis Redding sequence in the oh, movie, the most infamous it, and phenomenal part of the movie. <laughs> it's my favorite part in the yeah. whole entire movie. He would, he would have had me with that one because yeah. that one was so cool and like just smooth. I was yeah. like, man, he has a little swag. Ducky he does. Has swag, he, does. So. he comes in with the hat and the, the, you know, and like does the whole entire dance. And it's like, <laughs> it's so amazing. He's, you know, like lip syncing to the song and everything. And he has this like perfect kind of, I don't even think that was necessarily choreographed. I think it was a lot like... Yeah, I think it was naturally... <laughs> yeah, I think it was a lot like Ferris Bueller, where it was just kind of like, just do something, you yeah. know? And even though, like, I know the Ferris Bueller thing was, that was an accident that they had to tell Matthew Broderick to just do something, because he was like 33 when they did that yes, movie. Yes, it was so funny. I was and, like, he's playing like he's 17, 18, but he was like 30 to 33 or something in that So, like, during the float sequence of Ferris Bueller, he'd actually thrown his back out. Oh, no. Which, you know, you ask, like, how does this 17-year-old throw his back out? Well, it's because he was 33. <laughs> <laughs> but that's still weird for a 33-year-old to yeah. throw his back out as well. Yeah. And, like, I guess, like, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I guess it makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, but I mean, like, he's older yeah. and he doesn't move like he used to, but yeah. that shouldn't be that. It shouldn't be that at 33 either. No, it shouldn't. I would have never thrown my back out at 33. <laughs> 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 I'm just saying. But, like, um... He, I know that that had happened, that he had ended up, like, throwing his back out. And so the the planned choreography never occurred. And so he just got to do whatever, just like, a, you know, he wanted to do in that moment. And it kind of felt like John Cryer was doing the same thing in Pretty in Pink. It felt like, it, only without throwing his back out, obviously, it felt like he just kind of showed up and was just like, I, you know, I, and, you know, Howard uh, Deutsch was just like, just do something. Yeah. You know, and that was something that I really loved, like, when when that whole entire sequence came up. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing that, that for this movie kind of always really kind of stuck with me was Harry Dean Stanton's performance. Yeah. Of course, like, I'm, you know, we're both huge admirers of yes. him. He's been mentioned on this show multiple times at this point. Yep. But um, for me, he was just that, that, like, especially when we re- went back and rewatched it. I haven't seen the movie in a really long time. Going back and rewatching it, I i mean, Harry Dean Stanton is somebody who always brings a certain amount of subtlety and, and life to any performance. I had not remembered how graceful that performance really was. Yeah. And then going back to it, I was like, he really is sort of the 
kind of quiet standout of mm-hmm. that movie. Mm-hmm. In particular, because I don't really think that John Hughes has always given parents in these movies roles that were that meaty. You know what? When you say that and I look back on it, no, maybe one of his first was, I mean, besides that one, mm-hmm. maybe his first was probably Home Alone. Yeah. If you really think about it, I yeah, feel Catherine like, the, yes, yeah. I think besides this one, Home yeah. Alone. Yeah, because, you know, like when I think about, you know, the parents and, you know, whether it's Breakfast Club or Ferris Bueller or 16 And somewhat Can- to 16 Candles as well. Yeah. He kind of highlighted them as well, a lot. Because of just how his dad, especially how her dad is. And then you remember her family comes into town in 16 Candles. Mm -hmm. So you kind of get a a whole like plethora of family, like her grandpa and grandparents and and then the way her sister is. And you kind of get a whole plethora of that. But yes, when it's really pinpointed and meaty, I would say this one and Home Alone. Yeah. And uh, I agree with that, especially because I, and I think a little bit of it is screen time, but more of it is really... Harry Dean Stanton actually had a major, major role in, in this movie, just in terms of what was written for him to do. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, in some of the, even in some kind of wonderful, the one thing with the, you know, the parents in that movie is he's really there as a plot device. Yeah. You know, to to give Eric Stoltz this moment. Yeah. But Harry, and then you can tell, also is there for his character building because you yeah. can tell like what drives him and what doesn't. Yeah. Depending on how his father is. Yeah. Which, I mean, in a lot of stories and in real life, a lot of that is very yeah. relevant. It's the parents. They are always that sandwich and you're yeah. the meat. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're, they, you're, you're the good parts of them, right? And they're always supposed to be that part outside yeah. of you that kind of bleeds into you a little bit. Yeah. And, I mean, he does a great job with that in a lot of his films, but yeah, yeah some of the meteor ones, yeah. And that was one of the things I thought was interesting was because going back to it, I remember Harry Dean Stanton, of course, being in the movie. I really remembered him having about maybe five, ten minutes of screen time. Yeah. Going back and rewatching it, it was like, I know he's in almost the entire film as yeah, a major component. You even know? if you still, yeah, because, I mean, when she's home a lot, yeah. And you also see what drives her as well because she's someone that has to take care of her father because he spent so long in depression and yeah. um just kind of in woe over yeah. his wife or yeah. ex wife or the or Molly Ringwald's character's mother who left. Yeah. He's been in such a depression depressive state with that for so long that she had to step up and kind of be the parent versus him being one. Yeah. And it's kind of cool at the end how he finally gets a job and he, he starts to clean up a little bit. Yeah. And it's about her life. It's about time that she starts to think about herself. Yep. It's about time she starts to think about her future. And she should no longer be... I mean, and truly, we all, of course, if anything our parents need, we always want to take care of them, yeah. right? But I don't think a child should be taking care of their yeah. parents. Well, you know, it's also funny, too, that, like... Not at that age. You no. know, when you're older, yes, of course. Yeah. But I don't think at that age. It's also funny, too, that, like, talking about the plot, like, just stripped down and basic makes me realize how much... I wonder how much this um, 
influenced another movie that we had on our True Gems podcast, Dreamland. Oh, yeah. Because I realized it was like the just kind of shell That's of this story. That's what I mean. Stories. And I like a lot of yeah. those similar films. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. I, I realized that just the shell of this story is very, very, very similar and to that movie. a lot of stuff is John Hughes inspired when you look yeah. at it. Yeah. And that, that's what, you know, I was leaning back to is, you know, you were talking about like that certain period in which those movies were still, you know, hitting very well, which in my opinion, I think it kind of ended with super bad. Like, you know, yeah, you know, like when I think about so. it, like Seth Rogen was good at like, yeah, him and, um, his, uh, Evan, uh, Evan, yeah. Yes. Um, Evan Goldberg, Evan Goldberg. I thought no, no, not Evan Goldberg. Uh, I forgot his last name. Yeah. That's so sad. We both just, yeah, but name. we usually can, we yeah. know it so well because <laughs> there was a time where I was so obsessed with Seth Rogen films. So, yeah, me too. I mean, and the the Rogan and Apatow, yeah, that you know, too. movies yeah. that they did together, I'll, like those, those were always just fantastic. And like they they did like yeah, Evan Goldberg, you're right. Yeah, yeah. that's why I was like, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like uh, I think that I kind of ended with like super bad in some yeah, ways because it was one of the last kind of comedy stories that really hit and had a major effect on. A lot of kids yeah. growing up, I, I think so. Yeah, because, like, I think that it's a little bit more... And that's the thing I think is so interesting about John Hughes. And in particular, when we look at these two movies, that this was definitely definitely what Pretty in Pink was when it came out. I think the thing that's made him such a kind of a filmmaker has such incredible staying power is the fact that Pretty in Pink and Superbad, both, you know, like all these movies we're talking about that are coming-of-age stories, they were also, like, part of the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. They were kind of pop culture yes. phenomena, and they, they were, were. Re- you know reference points in pop culture. And like, you know, like when Pretty in Pink came out, you know, the soundtrack featuring a psychedelic. Well, I mean, named after the psychedelic first, first song, song, and it's used throughout it. Yeah, Pretty in Pink. And then, of course, <laughs> they also did uh, the song that was featured in Valley Girl, uh, uh, "Love My Way." Yep, and. Love like both incredible yeah. new wave, you know, <laughs> tracks and. That that but that also kind of because it wasn't became, like also in um, yeah it was also in Call Me by Your Name yeah Call yeah Me it's Me. yeah okay. it plays in the background uh, when they're at the, uh, the club yeah I guess that was kind of close to one of the last things I remember being kind of a coming of age story well they sort of because so, they I mean there was a few that kind of yeah. hit but there is that's why I said it's far in between yeah because I think Greta Gerwig did an awesome amazing oh, job absolutely with Lady Bird yeah. Um, I also think she did an amazing job with the rendition or her version of Little Women. Yeah, absolutely. And then you have Call Me By Your Name. Absolutely. I think those are tremendous ones that left a big impact, yeah. you know, more recently. Mm-hmm. So, But they're always far in between because before that kind of row of movies that we're talking about, what can you remember in between? Yeah, I mean, like, and I guess that's the thing that's very interesting to me is that those are two films that really kind of caught their, their sort of, uh, you know, their kind of wave, I guess you can say for lack of a better way to put it off of the festival circuit. And in particular, the two directors that, you know, we mentioned there, you know, uh, thinking about Lady Bird and calling by your name in particular, I think you can even put Bones and All that came out oh, this year yes. in that category, you yeah. know, that was on your top 10. Which is another Luca Guadagnino. Yeah, and, he, you know, he's good at these coming-of-age stories as well. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that's very interesting is that, you know, both Lady Bird and, and uh, uh, Call Me By Your Name, and even, you know, going back 
before that, you know, you kind of thinking about Noah Baumbach a little bit, and in particular, um, Squid and the Whale. Okay. Or, or you know, um, I think Wes Anderson with uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Yes, as well as um, Perks of Being a Wallflower. Yeah, That's Perks of Being a Wallflower. Like, yep. You know what? I, the first thing that came in my head was the image was the book, that clean oh, yeah. book. Yeah. Because I have a version of that book. Yeah. Um, to this day, it's one of my favorite books that I can go back and read to this day. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, I will admit that some of the meteor parts they kind of left out. Yeah. Or they softened yeah. in the movie. Yeah. But I still love Perks of Being a Wallflower in that movie. Yeah. I still love the movie because it has like one of my favorite characters in there, which is, um, Logan Lerman's character as well as yeah. I love um Mae Whitman. So yeah. they have her in there. Um, and then I think one of the other ones there's like King of Summer. Yeah, Kings of Summer and um, uh, The Spectacular Now was another yep. one that I would... And The Dove. I like those. So yep. we have some in between. And I think of all of the ones that we just mentioned, what's very interesting to me is with exception of probably The Duff. Yeah. All of those movies are movies that became, you know, big reference points or big deals to a certain audience, but they never really hit the zeitgeist Mostly because all of those movies are really kind of director-driven. Yeah. Whereas The Duff and Superbad, if you know who Greg Matola is, then you kind of know a little bit about that aspect of Superbad. If you're a Judd Apatow fan, yeah. if you're a Seth Rogen fan, okay, those are selling points. But, like, when you think about Superbad, when you think about Pretty in Pink, I think a big deal, a big thing with those is that these are movies that teenagers... They don't care who's involved with it. Yeah. They don't care who's making it. Yeah. Maybe there's a thing about, you know, Michael Sarah, you know, Superbad, or like in particular Molly Ringwald with Pretty and Pink. Yeah, I mean, because, but that's the funny thing, because you're right in that sense. I, I don't think in the beginning yeah. it wasn't so much of it matter who was in it. Yeah. They actually executed those films so well that yeah. they became a household name off of it. Exactly. And like that, that's the thing I think is interesting. That kind of leads me to the, Next thing I wanted to bring up to you, which was, this is one of the most fascinating things is how these films kind of created like teenage movie icons. Yeah. And right now, when you look at a lot of our teenage movie icons, I put in quote, air quotes, yeah. because it's now also like series two. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting to me that like a lot of the stuff that's coming out now, there's more of like a, a genre bent or a dramatic bent to mm -hmm. it. You know, think about Euphoria or like the new Lily Rose Depp thing that's coming up. Yeah, and isn't it like a HBO? It's like an HBO series. series. Uh, and when I think about all of those things, I'm like, that's very interesting because these are these were movies about teenagers being teenagers. Yes, and they're you know I'm sure that the there are elements of Euphoria that are very true to some people's lives. Yeah, but. The thing I think is very interesting about something like Pretty in Pink, something like, you know, I mean, Some Kind of Wonderful is interesting because it sits on that yeah. little, like, oh. fence of being, like, halfway between this is an average teenage life and this is a movie teenage yeah, life, Yeah, because, you know? I mean, and you, and you, as you know, mm -hmm. my all-time favorite John Hughes movie is Some Kind of Wonderful yeah. because of... The peculiarness with it. Yeah. And I think it's so peculiar, but yeah. it still hits all those teenage points that you yeah. need to hit. And it's still an amazing coming of age story, but it definitely sits in um, almost like Purpose of Being a Wallflower. That yeah. movie does. It's it's in its own little kind of cliche, how you say, the kind of little niche yeah. kind of 
box of everything, that's how I see kind of some kind of wonderful. Well, like, but you know, not to jump ahead too far oh, yes, to it, yes. but like, Sorry, you, but you got really, the... <laughs> no, it's okay. But it, it's like, it's really, really funny that you say that specifically. And I don't want to lose that. When we get over talking about some kind of wonderful. I remember when me and you first started talking about movies and, and uh, watching stuff together and you mentioned some kind of wonderful as being your favorite John Hughes movie. And I remember in my head going the movie where Eric Stoltz walks into a train. Like, because that's sort of what it was to me, you know, like, which is the opening credits of the yes. movie, you know, it's like yes. that, but you're absolutely right in that sense that it is a very peculiar film that sits outside of the normal. Yeah. Cause John it's not Husey part of, I don't think it's part of the Brat Pack, but it's not, and it, but it sits on in its own little niche kind of area. Just yeah. like to me, Perks of Being a Wallflower does. It did. And, and, and it, Kings of Summer, those things are so like yeah. outside the box, but it still has all the things that it needs to be a coming of age story. Yeah. And like, that's the thing that I think was really interesting about Pretty and Pink in particular is that that was a movie that was definitely right place, right time. And it created sort of like cinematic teenage icons out of these four kids in particular, mm-hmm. you know, with Ringwald being number one. I mean, she was already kind of one, yeah. you know, going into that. Because, well, yeah, she was. Yeah. yeah, But like she was really, truly like Molly Ringwald yeah. after Pretty in Pink. She was like the princess of the 80s. Man. She was. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, John Cryer, of course, mm-hmm. you know, that was a big deal for him. A big deal for uh, Andrew McCarthy. And of course, huge deal for James Spader. Mm-hmm. And that was very, very interesting to me looking at that movie. And that movie is Pretty in Pink is pure kind of like teenage bubblegum polish yeah. on all levels. And it, and it's the best of it, mm-hmm. in my opinion. But um, it, it does, like, kind of create an interesting question for me, like, for somebody else. Because for me growing up, uh, Molly Ringwald was just Molly Ringwald. But for you growing up, was Molly Ringwald kind of, like, a sort of, like, teenage icon to you? I mean, yeah. yeah. Just because she became that way for me in the 90s, even before I became... A teenager. It was yeah. when I was little and then a preteen. Yeah. She was that for me because I would just sit and be like, wow. I would yeah. be so awed by her performances yeah. of all the John Hughes films. Yeah. And she was in like 16 Candles and you saw Breakfast Club and yep. you saw those and you were just like, wow. I, I think that was the funny thing to me was that Molly Ringwald was always, to me, the actress that I, in terms of the Breakfast Club, the one that I did not have a crush on. Because I always had a crush on Ali Sheedy. I was about to say, and, so. <laughs> and, and, and that's funny you mentioned that because in the in Breakfast Club, the Breakfast yeah. Club, Ali Sheedy was my favorite character yeah. in the Breakfast yeah. Club. So that because I found her really just mm-hmm. emo and like yeah. but just different. So I, I think thought that's she was also the thing that was kind of fascinating about John Hughes is that it the way that Molly Ringwald like it seems like she. Not, you know, from a guy's perspective, it seems like not only was she kind of like the princess of the 80s, but also was just kind of a big deal for young girls. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I think is very interesting about John Hughes's films is that he was really, really good at picking that out yeah. and at finding young people that other young people could identify with with these actors. Mm-hmm. And of course, their collaboration in particular was a huge deal. Yeah. I mean, she was sort of his De Niro to his Scorsese. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's like that it, for a while, uh, up until some kind of wonderful, interestingly. Yeah. But like, that was always really interesting to me because from my perspective as a guy watching 
Pretty in Pink. That's probably why I had the reaction that I did to it not being Ducky was because that was the male character I identify with in that story. Yeah. The fact that you could create a story in which both young women and young men watching the movie can completely and totally identify with at that time in the eighties and that it could still have an effect later on. That's really, really fascinating to me. Yeah. Do you think that that was like largely attributed to just himself as a writer or to his abilities as like a producer and in in his casting? I think it's both. Yeah. It's some of everything because I think you have, have to have a little talent and skill in all of that to complete like a complete a whole entire picture mm-hmm. to make a whole entire picture like that. Yeah, yeah. You got to have some skill in all parts of that. Yeah. So yes, as well as the writing, as well as casting, well, as well yeah. as directing and writing yeah. the characters, the way you're, of course, yeah. all of it. Yeah. And I think he was really amazing at, at finding those um, beautiful puzzle pieces and putting them mm-hmm. together. And that's why his coming of age stories are the best ever that I've ever yeah. had the pleasure of like watching. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. I, I will throw out really quick um, that I thought it was fascinating going back to Pretty in Pink that it was shot by Tak Fujimoto, mm-hmm. who I believe that we brought him up once before on this show, but he was Jonathan Demme's old cinematographer yes, you, you who, said, yeah. who had uh, done Silence of the Lambs with him and a number of other things. Going back and rewatching it, it was very, very interesting to see how he worked with Howard Deutsch with, in particular, capturing some of those shots of Molly Ringwald. Mm-hmm. some of those shots of her are unbelievable because the focus is never ever soft mm-hmm. but somehow she has this kind of magnetism to make it look as if the the lighting is just a little soft on her yeah which is very very fascinating to me and uh, a lot of fun yeah um i guess did you have anything else with uh, pretty and pink no that was it awesome so let's jump into some kind of wonderful yes so, Some Kind of Wonderful is a 1987 American teen romantic drama film directed by Howard Deutsch, which he's the same one that directed Pretty in Pink. Yeah. Um, and it's starring Eric Stoltz, Mary Stuart Masterson, and Leah Thompson. Um, and it's one of the several successful teen dramas written by John Hughes in the 1980s. Yeah. Um, it is starring, of course, some of the other people they also mentioned was Craig Sheffer because he was also... Yep kind of more of so the villain of the story in that yeah. one um but the funny thing about this one is that it was released in february of, of 1987 but february 27th so it was literally almost a year exactly mm-hmm. from when pretty and pink was released yep so i find that very like cool and interesting and their box office um was 18.5 million yeah it's interesting that within one year, the kind of craze for these types of movies had already kind of evaporated. Yeah, it's, it just it was cut by half. Yeah, yeah, and it's very, very interesting. That is a very interesting thing to me. I think so. With this movie, I guess before we jump into all of the other stuff with it, do you think that this was a correction of Pretty in Pink's? I didn't even think that way yeah. at first. Like, I could tell you I had no idea until you brought it up to me one day. And we were watching it a while back. And then you were like, yeah. I think that was a correction. I'm like, yeah. what? And then when you kind of explained it to me, which I would love for you to explain. Yeah. But when you explained it to me, I was like, oh, my goodness. I think you're so right. Yeah. So it made sense. It clicked and, like, really made sense. So my 
opinion of the movie without really knowing anything about the production outside of who made it and that stuff. Um, my overall opinion of this was when we were watching some kind of wonderful at one point, I had the opinion that this was a correction of pretty in pink. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that it was the next year. I actually thought this movie was like 1990 mm-hmm. when I, when we rewatched it that one time when that was the first time I'd seen it since a long while before when mm-hmm. it was still in my head, that movie where Eric Stoltz walks into a train. Yeah. And so, like, <laughs> um, rewatching, I was like, I, it, it is to me sort of a correction of Pretty in Pink because the movie, of course, ends with Eric Stoltz and Mary Stuart Masterson, their best friends throughout the story. Mm-hmm. They swap the genders of the two characters. Eric Stoltz is this time the Molly Ringwald role. Yes. Mary Stuart Masterson is the John Cryer role. Yes. Um, and by the end of it, the two of them end up together. Mm-hmm. What is very, very interesting to me was, and so my opinion of it was that some kind of wonderful was John Hughes saying, I know that I did everybody wrong with Pretty in Pink. <laughs> yeah. That was my opinion of it. Doing some research on the movie, I found out that that was 100% true. Wow. That um, So John Hughes wrote the script with the idea in mind that he never felt that the ending of Pretty in Pink was correct, and he never felt that he should have actually changed it based upon that early audience response and upon, you know, Molly Ringwald's response. Um, Which makes this even more interesting when you look at other things in production history, because essentially what ended up happening is he wrote some kind of wonderful, he thought, this is a good way to correct what happened in Pretty in Pink. Yeah. And, of course, I say correction in big quotes, because... There was nothing really technically incorrect about Pretty in Pink, just that I never really thought that the yeah, that ending was just, warranted. Yeah, And um, I never thought that, that ending was earned with her yeah. getting together with Andrew McCarthy. Yeah. Whereas here, I feel that the ending is earned with Eric Stoltz getting together yeah, with Mary definitely. Stewart Masterson. Yeah, because for sure. <laughs> from the very beginning, it's right there that it's going to happen. Yeah. It's just about how we're going to get there. Yeah, And this time, he didn't do the old switcheroo <laughs> and all of a sudden have him get with Leah Thompson. Yeah, you because know? he played out exactly the way the chemistry should have gone. Yeah. Should have always been because there was chemistry there. Mm-hmm. And it went exactly the way the chemistry should have naturally led those characters. Yeah. It went exactly that way. What's very interesting to me was that what ended up happening with this movie was that he wrote the script his original idea was that Molly Ringwald was going to play the uh, uh, Mary Stuart Masterson role. That, and that he was going to get Martha Coolidge to come in and direct it. Martha Coolidge came in and she wound up bringing in both Masterson and Eric Stoltz. And was like, her idea was that she was not going to stick to John Hughes' screenplay. Her idea was that she was going to twist it, make it a little bit darker, lean a little bit more into the Duncan side, the Elias Coteus yes. stuff, lean a little bit more into Eric Stoltz's involvement with him, and make Mary Sue Masterson's character kind of a true punk rocker. And the Leah Thompson character was going to be a lot snottier. That yeah. was her, and it was going to be kind of a skewering of kids like the Leah Thompson character. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, John Hughes obviously was not down for that, him being a notorious control freak over his screenplays and his stuff. He was also, at this point, he was not 100% sold on what had ended up happening with Pretty in Pink, that he didn't have as much control over that cut as he would have liked to and didn't have as big of a voice because he was not the sole producer. So some kind of wonderful, he took sole producing credit. Mm Mm-hmm. Specifically so that he could have that control over who was going to direct and how it was going to be done. Mm -hmm. He fired Martha Coolidge after he had found out that she was planning on doing something else. That something else is what Eric Stoltz and Mary Stuart Masterson were actually interested in. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, John Hughes himself had gone to Leah Thompson. First he went to Molly Ringwald, though, for the Masterson role. And Molly Ringwald had said, you know, essentially, I don't really want to do this movie Mm -hmm. because I think I'm getting typecast by you. Yeah. And he was like, no, 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 but I wrote it different. She was like, yeah, but I'm still the girl that gets with the guy at the end. Yeah. And so I'm not 100% you want to do this. I want to take on grown-up roles so that I can have a grown-up career. Mm -hmm. And John Hughes took that as a personal slight and never worked with her again. Mm Mm-hmm. Never wrote anything else for her, never offered anything to her, and was like, cool, then we're done. Mm-hmm. Uh, Coolidge brought in uh, Mary Stuart Masterson, and... Yeah, because her mother or... Somebody was actually... You know, she there was actually a link to why Mary Stuart Masterson also was considered... Because I remember her parent like her mother somebody being like a script supervisor or mm-hmm. they were some part oh, of the production yeah, yeah. yeah that is and then actually true yes. she actually rep like she referenced her daughter she was like try my daughter let's yeah. see you know if she fits that role you should try my daughter she wants to be an actor and i think she actually gave the name to her of she, her daughter yeah she actually had given her like uh uh i think that there was a connection with the two of them martha coolidge Okay. And so that's how she ended up yeah. coming into it. Um, and then John Hughes approached Leah Thompson mm-hmm. at the same time. Leah Thompson turned it down. She was like, I don't want to do that. Leah Thompson believed that she had on her hands a hit that was going to open up all the doors for her, which was Howard the Duck. Okay. And uh, once Hughes found all this stuff, he fired Martha Coolidge and was like, this is a correction of Pretty in Pink anyway. Let's bring back Howard Deutsch. Let's bring back the big guns. And then he can, like, shepherd this to the end. And we know how to work together. And just what it is, I know that I can kind of control what he's doing. Mm -hmm. Because he was able to do Pretty in Pink. Howard Deutsch came back. He offered the role to Leah Thompson. And Howard the Duck had just failed. And she was like, yes, please. Came on. Of course, they ended up getting married. And now their daughter is Zoe Deutsch. Deutsch, She's a great, uh, fantastic young actress. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. and so that was the thing that I thought was very, very interesting about it, was that that was originally kind of what the intention of the movie was, and it's so, like, on the sleeve of the movie yeah. that, you know, it really was like Howard Hughes, I mean, uh, Howard Hughes, John Hughes, <laughs> going like, uh, Howard Deutsch and John Hughes, putting together, yeah, know, yeah Howard Hughes. I know. <laughs> um, it really was uh, John Hughes, kind of like, I didn't like the end of that one. I want to. I want to redo it. Yes, and that, I think that's very, very interesting. What makes this one your favorite one? 
Because it's just so odd. It's just right. outside of the normal stuff. Because, and the reason why I say that, it's because I fell in love with this movie. And then around the time where, you know, Pretty in Pink and The Breakfast Club and all those were really popular. And I would ask people about those films. And, and, and kids knew about, you know, The Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink and mm-hmm. Sistine Candles. But they'd be like, what? What is some kind of wonderful no one knew about yeah. that one as much. It wasn't as like big and prevalent as the other movies. Yeah, and I fell in love with it because I love the dynamic of Eric Stoltz and Mary Stuart Masterson's chemistry. Yeah. I love their dynamic in that film, and I love yes that correction. I love yeah. that at the end she gets the guy, not that the girl gets, mm-hmm. but he. Yeah, the girl gets the guy. Because usually at the end, it's like the guy gets the girl, mm-hmm. right? We usually have a thing where that guy is pining for that girl. Yeah. And at the end, he gets her. But with this one, it was a lot more... I was It was a lot more relatable where, mm-hmm. yes, Eric Stokes was the main character of the movie, right? Yeah. But there was such a... I don't know. There was such a light with Mary Stuart Masterson for mm-hmm. me. That it was nice to say the girl got the guy. Yeah, and I think it was. The, I think that what he did that was very, very smart was he realized that if he wrote a really charismatic character as the best friend, mm-hmm. that they will slightly overshadow the actual main character, mm-hmm. so that you as an audience can actually create your own version of who the main character actually is for the story for you. Yes, and Mary Stuart Masterson, which her name was Watts in the. And some kind of wonderful. After Charlie Watts yep. of the Rolling Stones. Yep. Her name was Watts. And what I liked about her too, because I could relate to her character so well, because when I was growing up, because I grew up with like three brothers, I had mm-hmm. a sister as well, but I grew up around three brothers. And because I grew up around like three brothers, there were points in my life was I when I was like a hardcore tomboy. Yeah. And that was so cool to me to see this not so feminine like hardcore like tomboy mm-hmm. still be a girl but she was just you could still tell she was a hardcore tomboy yeah. because all she was around was like brothers and she liked more of the boyish things she didn't yeah. like the conventional things that girls like you can tell she didn't like dolls you can tell that she didn't like you know putting on makeup you can tell like all those things i could easily so relate to because for the longest time that's how i was yeah. like when throughout my teen years like when i would see girls my age like put on makeup i wore no makeup yeah I did not wear makeup. I didn't start wearing makeup until I got around women who were slightly older than me. And they yeah. were like sisters. And then they started going, wear heels. Yeah. Put on makeup. Let me show you how to do it. And then I was like, okay. Because in my family, I was the older sister. Yeah. So I had no one really showing me how to do those things. Because my mom had passed away when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. So I, I had no one showing me how yeah. to be the feminine girly girl. All I knew how to do was like kind of help out in the household and like help raise my brothers and sisters and help out in the household. That's yeah. all I knew how to do. Yeah. Um, and so I was not such a girly girl in my teenage years, just like Watts was. I was not a girly girl, but I was like heavy into music. I was so hardcore into music. Yeah. Like you would see posters all around my room of all the musicians and bands and all this stuff that I love. And there was always music going around. I could relate to anything that was playing, I could like picture something and tell you what that, like I could see a movie and, and tell you what that yeah. music was for me. Yeah. And I could relate it to always to music. I don't know why, but it was like such a thing. So I could heavily like really relate to her. Mm-hmm. 
And I thought she was just like the baddest chick ever. Yeah. She was so badass. Yeah. <laughs> so because of that, yeah. like I, I totally related to Watts. So to yeah. me, she became one of my favorite characters yeah. of all the teen films of all time. So I was like, yeah, some kind of wonderful is it for me. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's awesome, though, because like for me, this was one that was really kind of a rediscovery because of you, know, you showing it and this being your favorite. Mm-hmm. This one was kind of a rediscovery for me because this is not one that... I don't think most people would actually go back to this one very quickly, mm-hmm. you know, because like you said, it was kind of that one of like, which one was that? Yeah, it was outside of the box. Like people didn't know that one when it came to John um, Hughes movies because I would ask and yeah. everyone could name all the other ones. And then when I would bring up some kind of morphine, they were like, I don't know what that is. Yeah, they, it's it's an interesting movie in that it stands side by side with a movie we covered per- previously, A Legend of Billie Jean. Yes. Really well. Mm-hmm. And they're like, these are movies that were sort of about you know, they, they they tap into this thing that it's very interesting to me that this never hit with a wide audience, mm-hmm. which is they tapped into this thing about, you know, when there was kind of a, a culture of kind of like new wave punk kind of aesthetics with certain women. Mm-hmm. And of course, that was a huge thing with Legend of Billie Jean when she cuts her hair short. She's wearing the leather and like the biker gloves. Yes, and, but still it's beautiful all the same. Absolutely. And that's what I love about it because that's how Watts was to me. I'm like, her hair was short. Yeah. She didn't dress completely feminine, but yeah. she was still beautiful to me just the Absolutely. same. And she did not even care. That's what I loved about her too was her her like demeanor. Like yeah. she did not care yeah. if she actually fit in or not. She never tried. And she didn't care to. Yep. And I love that like boldness. I love that courage that she never tried to fit in. Yeah, same here. And it's like I that was the thing that I really, really liked about it. Well, both of those movies was going back and seeing that like it's very interesting to me that the the you know, this is a fantastic film, some kind of wonderful, and it was of the two, it's the one that's kind of the better one to me. Mm-hmm. And I see why this one's your favorite, because it has just a lot of layers and a lot of things going on that are very interesting, you know, mm-hmm. from the aspect of Eric Stoltz's character being an, wanting to be an artist, mm-hmm. which I thought was, uh, I, I, there are a few times in which I think high school movies get, you know, a kid with that kind of ambition, mm-hmm. right? Because I think a lot of times it's sort of, it's sort of like niche and silly and, and like not to cute. be vain mm-hmm. either, but it's funny for this film because and Pretty and Pink, yeah, you can say that Andrew McCarthy was the most, attra- the more attractive yeah, of the yeah. two between him and Ducky's character, like mm-hmm. John Cryer. But in this one, this one was funny to me because in some kind of wonderful to me, the ge- geeky art kid, because yeah. I was very artsy too, so that's why another reason I could relate to this film. And for to see somebody who is so creative and artsy to follow their dream and not go like the normal academic mm-hmm. way, I thought that was a pretty cool thing Absolutely. too. Absolutely. That's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah. yeah. And then I thought it was cool because for once to me in that dynamic of mm-hmm. who was more attractive, to me, Eric Stoltz was more attractive than the Craig Sheffer's character. Yeah. yeah. But because Craig Sheffer had like resources, <laughs> let's yeah. say this now, resource, because he had money, mm-hmm. it automatically made him popular. But to me, the more interesting and and attractive character was eric stoltz yeah i agree completely and and to me the thing that i thought was so wonderful about it was there's this one scene that i thought got it completely right it's a very silly scene but it's the scene that i thought got it completely right where eric stoltz is in detention with elias coteus and he's drawing (laughs) this beautiful picture and he kind of holds it up, and Elias Coteus looks at it and goes like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't say anything. He just has this look like, okay, doing like the De Niro, okay. Yeah, he did. 
and then he's looking at his desk and he's using a knife and carving (laughs) essentially like a bunch of just crazy obscene images into his desk and he just breaks the wooden part of the desk off of the you know the the metal frame and holds it up to eric stoltz is like "Eh?" you know yeah (laughs) eric stoltz like yeah yeah (laughs) there was something about that that like without them saying anything or doing anything in particular kind of showed something that I think you rarely get to see, which is kind of within the Eric Stoltz character, the kind of openness that it really does exist in a kid that is that age that is wanting to be an artist Mm -hmm. that it wasn't about the, you know, the bully of the story is essentially what would have been the Andrew McCarthy character of pretty in pain, which is funny because and, it still sort of was in a way because he was yeah. friends with the bully yeah. of the film because he was the rich kid. Right. James Spader yeah. was the rich kid, and he was a bully. He yeah. was an asshole. So yep. yeah, <laughs> and that's the thing that I thought was really interesting about it was the entire idea of the character that is the traditional bully mm-hmm. to the young art kid is actually kind of his buddy, is his detention buddy. Yeah. You know, and but the, he started off. Remember, yeah, he, he started, started off, off bullying him, yeah. and he earned his respect. Yep, yeah, and that was the thing that I I like all of those aspects. Mm-hmm. I like the aspect of it picking apart the genre, but picking it apart in a very quiet way. Yeah, where it's sort of this guy who's sitting down. It's not it's not Phil Wanu doing Three O'clock High. Mm-hmm. You know, Three O'clock High is a true dissection yeah. of that genre, and. It's maybe my favorite of those kinds of movies, mm-hmm. but it's also it's it's also a movie that's very it's very cutting and it's very much a movie that's like kind of prodding at these types of movies. And so there is I could see if someone were to argue that Three O'clock High is a little disingenuous by comparison. Mm-hmm. I could see the argument. I don't agree with that, but I can see the argument. Mm-hmm. The thing that I love about Some Kind of Wonderful is it's the guy who created this genre actually picking himself apart as an artist of this genre. Yeah. And in that way, it's to me like one of those fascinating deconstructions Mm -hmm. of this whole thing and of picking apart this whole entire idea. Like, yeah, the beautiful girl is going to be short hair, leather jacket and gloves. Mm -hmm. You know, she's going to be our main character. This one, she's a drummer. Yeah. I'm going to name her after Charlie Watts. Yeah. And the girl is giving me, you know, the, 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 you know, quote unquote, like kind of princess character of the story played by Leah Thompson is giving me, you know, named Amanda Jones after the stone song. Yeah. And we're even going to give her a moment in which she is like the, a playboy centerfold yeah. in the middle of a locker room yeah. in this movie. One of my favorite moments I mean, when she in the is movie. a gorgeous and beautiful <laughs> woman. Is. And it was kind of cool to see her. Um, It was really cool to see her stand up on her own at the end. Yeah. And that was a powerful statement to Absolutely. me too, that she was yes. able to say, whether it's you or him, yep. or him, I'm, I'm, I just want to know who I am. I want to yeah. find out myself. I want to stand alone for once yeah. because that'll, that's what will make me stronger. Yeah. So I don't need to rely on you, 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 you. Yeah. So I, I love that part of it. I, I did too. I mean, to me, that's the thing that I think is the most, because one thing I think is very interesting about the movie. And I don't think that it's, necessarily a negative criticism but i think there's an interesting thing about most of the john hughes movies is that they tend to build 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 and then wrap up in about two and a half minutes yeah that is true you know that's true you can almost look at those last two and a half minutes as kind of like eh? <laughs> like but he does it very well 
And this one I thought was one of the more graceful examples Mm -hmm. of this, you know, where that last two and a half minute wrap up is, you know, Eric Stoltz having to basically be told by the princess of the story. She's like, I need to be by myself so that I can figure me out. And you do really want to be with somebody, but it is not me. And the person that it is has been standing in front of you this whole entire night. And sometimes it's true. We don't always see what's standing right in front of us. And sometimes we are very lucky when we do, Mm -hmm. because those are the people that really compliment us. Um, Sometimes we want and desire things that aren't really for us. Yeah. And I think that's where that movie comes into play in with Eric Stoltz and Leah Thompson's character is that, Sometimes we often want what we shouldn't want yeah. and or what we can't have. And it's not even so much that we can't have it. It's just, I, I don't think we should always want what we, we shouldn't want mm-hmm. everything just because we see it. Yeah, absolutely. And she was very right in that film when she said, oh, what is this hanging up in this museum? My face. Yeah. And then she goes, color whatever you want a painting whatever yeah. you want she's like it's still you using yeah. me and i was like that is perfect to yeah. me that was such an amazing perfect line because as much as he's innocent in in everything and he's the mm-hmm. kid trying to prove stuff you still used her yeah. to prove that you could get her yeah so Absolutely. Yeah. it became to me later it became more about the chase than the actual girl yeah. you didn't even know her matter of fact by the time y'all had went on that date you didn't. You could tell y'all didn't even care for each other. Y'all were not yeah. connecting. There was no chemistry. Yeah. So that's how you could tell that by the end of it, what was this all for? Because mm-hmm. you find out that y'all don't even mesh well together. Y'all yeah. don't even y'all. From the moment y'all got in the car, y'all were kind of like in disagreement and like clashing. Mm-hmm. So y'all didn't have anything in common. There was yeah. nothing there for you. And she's right. You still used her. She may have used you to get back at her boyfriend, mm-hmm. but you still used her as well because you used her to prove mm-hmm. that you could have her. Yeah. You didn't. You, you didn't. At the end, by the end, you didn't. You weren't with her because you actually really liked her. Mm-hmm. You used her because you wanted to prove that you could get her. Yeah, and I, I, I love that whole entire aspect, and I also love the whole entire aspect that he uses. What is to me like the one of the like kind of ultimate you know i love you big teenage moments where he at the end you know eric Stoltz walks leah thompson through this museum mm-hmm. and elias cotez's dad is the night manager there that's how they're able to get in after hours and he hangs up a painting of her on the wall mm-hmm. and in most other movies that's the moment where it's like and then they were together forever yeah. you know like the music swells yeah. and instead he's like no no i mean now i'm gonna give you 10 more minutes yeah in which that's actually the reason why they cannot be together. Yep. That was really incredible to yeah, me. Yeah, because you just used my face. You just mm-hmm. liked how I look. Yeah. You didn't you don't really know me. You just want to see if you could have me. Mm-hmm. And that's what's the point she was making. And as well as uh with Eric Stoltz, like that's the cool thing, is that he was able to see it. Cause some of us, we don't see it at the end. We try to yeah. hold on to those things because yeah. We think that's that's what makes us look good is what's hanging on our arm or yeah. what's beside us. We try to go like, I feel important and good because I got her or I yeah. got him. And at the end, he was able to realize like, no, like the person I have true feelings for, that's probably I can relate to the most. Even when we bump heads, it's this lovey-dovey fight mm-hmm. with him and Watts. Yeah. 
it was him and Watts. And to me, she was the always the girl that could put him in his place truly. Yeah. That's why I loved about her. It's like, yeah, she could tell you and love you. At the same time, she could beat you up. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yep. <laughs> and again, this movie has, you know, kind of goes back to something that we were talking about earlier. I mean, the soundtrack is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I misspoke earlier, I think. I think I mentioned the Smiths were in, on this soundtrack. They're actually on Pretty in Pink. But um, this one was interesting, though, because just like the movie itself being kind of a almost a deep cut, you know, kind of take on the this genre. Yeah. The soundtrack is also kind of a lot of deep cuts of like new wave. Yeah. You know, it's got Jesus and Mary train on there. It's got, you know, uh, flesh for Lulu on there. It's got the March violets on there. It, it licked the tens is on there. It's yeah. kind of fascinating to me that like, this was even sort of a lot of, the hardest and, walk, Jesus and Mary Chain. Yeah, the Jesus and Mary Chain uh, mm-hmm. being in there is unbelievable to me. We got to see them live, which yes. was incredible. Two mm-hmm. nights in a row, yep. which was incredible. <laughs> but, I mean, it's interesting to me that, you know, even looking at a band like that being featured in this movie, that was not, they were not the hippest band to feature in a movie at that time. Yeah. Even if they did have a tremendous following and are one of the great, you know, bands ever. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they even use a song that is not exactly, you know, I mean, the other movie that used the Jesus and Mary Chain in a really big way was Lost in Translation. Yes. That and uses Just Like Honey for its ending. Mm-hmm. That is the ultimate, like, kind of, and I love Lost in Translation, so this is not a dig on Sofia Coppola, but that is the ultimate, like, I'm hip, I know music <laughs> kind of throw in there, whereas, like, Throwing the hardest walk in there in some kind of wonderful is like, no, you are actually hip and you really do yeah, know. You like, know. <laughs> yeah. Because he always knew how to use the music very well she to did. tell his stories too. Yeah. And that's what made his films as well as the music. I think that was the other thing that was really fascinating about John Hughes is that you know, I mean John Hughes in terms of cinema, he it would have been tremendous to watch him in this day and age of television. Yeah. You know, and of television essentially taking over the you know the area of film that he used to be the king of which is Mm -hmm. that middle ground you know that that middle that mid-budget area of like oh yeah i can make a movie for nine million Mm -hmm. i can make a movie for five million and it can gross back anywhere from 20 to 40 or 50 Mm -hmm. it's like pretty much guaranteed no matter what i'm gonna make a hit for you for this kind of mid-level amount of money that's of course all now migrated to TV, and I'd be very fascinated to watch John Hughes in that kind of an environment of today. Yeah. Mostly because this guy was a showrunner before a showrunner was a thing. I mean, that's yeah. still not technically a real job. Yeah, <laughs> but he was a showrunner before a showrunner was even a thing. This guy had full control over his soundtracks. Mm-hmm. He wrote the script. He wouldn't direct the movies all the time, but you kind of knew he secretly did. Yeah, it was like him and George Lucas, like mm-hmm. that they had a very similar thing where it's like, you knew that they, even if they didn't, weren't necessarily credited for it, it was their product yeah. through and through. Yeah. Howard Deutsch is credited as director of both these movies, but these are still John Hughes films. Yeah. Yeah. Like when you go and you see the movie on a re-release on a Saturday yeah. at, you know, a, a, like some Fandango event, it's <laughs> announced as, Tonight we are screening John Hughes' Pretty in Pink, or John Hughes is some kind of wonderful, even though he wasn't really the director. That is a very, very fascinating thing to me, that he exerted this level of control over 
everything that he did. Yeah. I mean, there are not very many other people who ever did that. And on top of that was the guy who physically sat down and wrote all of this stuff. Yeah. And he did it back to back. We just talked about two movies that came out a year apart from each yeah, other. exactly. One of which is a correction of the movie that came out the year before. Yeah. Most other people today would just, or even, you know, since like probably the, you know, whenever DVD really came into vogue and we started having quote unquote director's cuts, most other people would have just re-released the original and Pretty and Pink. Yeah. And just been like, so this is actually really how it should, mm-hmm. that would have been their correction. This guy made a whole other movie. Yeah. <laughs> To offset, what to he, offset what he just did. That's funny. <laughs> that he didn't feel worked in the previous one. See, but that's the genius of John, of John Hughes. Hughes. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about about no. John Hughes or these two films? No, I would say we covered it all. Awesome. So uh, we will be back next week with a fun episode, which will be our 10th episode, the end of our first season. Yeah. And then... Uh, yeah, we'll be on to season two. We're going to be getting a little bit more into kind of some other types of stuff, like yeah. some, you know, like TV and some other types of stuff that is not necessarily just film. Yeah. But uh, thank you, everybody, for listening, and thank you for hanging out with us at the Film Cafeteria. I'm Scott. And I'm Brittany. And we will see you next week.